I'm your host, Stephanie Martinez Rivera, and you are listening to the Joy Found Here podcast. I am obsessed with reminding my fellow mamas, queens, badass babes, ladies and girls that perfection is just a word, not a lifestyle. Multitasking is overrated. Comparison is a theft of happiness. And yes, you can put yourself first. Oh, and by the way, for optimum results, you should. I'm a New York girl from a small town, part-time badass, proud mama bear times three. I've seen 60 full turns of the sun. I've learned the importance of how kindness begins with you and your self-talk. Join us each week as we help you navigate both the messy and the magical season of this crazy ride called life. Real stories that remind us to reclaim your power. The sun does come out after the shitstorm. A good cry can be cleansing and We really don't know who sits on top of the mountain of judgment. Sit back, plug in, fill up your cup. This is your time. Remember, you've always had the power. Welcome to Joy Found Here. Welcome back to another episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. So today we are talking to McCall Gordon. She is a certified gentle sleep coach. Love the title of that. We're going to talk about sleep training for our newbies, our little new additions who have just joined us on this earth, not only with them, but with the parents. Like, what's happening today? I think our expectations are getting a little twisted. And these kids are new here, too. It's their first time. They don't know what they're supposed to do. First one, first time they hand you that kid and say, okay, we'll see you later. They're waving at you from the hospital and you look at your partner in the car and you're like, holy fuckballs, they let us take the baby home. Are they crazy? And then you figure it out. Everybody works together. But sleep and the topic of sleep and how to get the baby, I'll say, trained has always eluded a lot of people. So today we're going to learn some more information. Information is power. And I am thrilled to be speaking with McCall today. So first, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us and welcome. Thank you very much. All right. You know, the first question always is you got to tell us about you anywhere you'd like to start. Absolutely. So I should also preface this, that I definitely do not talk about sleep in the way that most parents are hearing about sleep. So if you're nervous, like, oh my God, she's just going to talk about letting our babies cry. I'm really not. I believe it's a really fresh needed perspective on sleep because we have kind of lost our minds. So I come to this work, not at all because I nailed sleep with my own children who are now I'll just call them adults. I say young adults, but adults fully sleeping on their own. (laughs) Good news. All right. You did it. See, you see how it works. (laughs) I know, right? It's true. But back then it would have been in the mid nineties. There were two options, crying it out, or I say gut it out, meaning cry it out or just live with it. I knew I couldn't do crying it out from a perspective of being kind of a sensitive, intense adult who had sensitive, intense children. I just knew it wouldn't work. So then my only choice was just live with it. And I have to say, I also can't recommend that. I tell parents, 
Mm. If you're not sleeping, I can't recommend. It's not sustainable. Yeah. And the wear and tear is massive because it goes on for years. And there were many, many, many days I was just not a good mom. And I would say to myself, like, is this better than having got like, maybe just let them cry. But I just knew it wasn't the right, that wasn't the right path. So back then there was no option. Today, we do have options, but a lot of parents don't know about it. And so my whole purpose, my big soapbox is twofold. One is that we really need to rethink how the information that parents are getting about sleep and sleep training. It really needs a complete revamp. And two, the impact of having an intense, sensitive kid on everything. So most of the people that make their way to me as a coach have a child who's just a little bit more of everything, more alert, more awake, more sensitive. They're the people who are in the same boat I was 20 some odd years ago. They tried what everybody's doing. They tried taking care of babies. They tried all the methods Mm -hmm. and it was a total dumpster fire and they don't have an alternative. So they're out there just like I was 26 years ago now, gutting it out. A lot hasn't changed. So I'm really trying my best to shout from the rooftops that we really, really need to be rethinking all of how parents are talked to about sleep, because I think it's actually making things worse for a lot of people, not better. So what should we know? Let's start there. Forget about what's out there. And this one's right. No, no, no. Let's just give them what they should know. Yeah. Well, some context. So all of the current sleep training research comes from behaviorism, like a million years ago in the 1920s. John Watson was this theorist who believed that babies came into the world as a blank slate. They came in with nothing. They brought nothing to the table and everything they are and learned came from the outside, meaning that we imprint whatever we wanted to on a baby. That is still at the heart of all of the sleep research and advice that's out there, that babies only learn from experience and from what behaviors are rewarded and what behaviors are not rewarded. Hmm. If you really said that to just about anybody right now, if I went to a pediatrician and said, do you believe babies are a blank slate and they only respond to rewards and punishments? They would laugh in my face. They would say, absolutely no. But every pediatrician in the country recommends crying it out, which essentially is based in behaviorism. So it's an old idea that we no longer buy that is still alive and well in every piece of sleep information that's out there. It's bunkers. It's bananas. Because we know babies come into the world with a different set of circumstances. We also know that emotional regulation and that whole self-soothing thing takes time to develop. Sleep takes time to develop. Mm -hmm. I get parents every day with a tiny brand new baby wondering why they're not sleeping at night. And it's like, because literally their brain is not developed enough to sleep at night yet. So the basic information about sleep development, about emotional regulation development is not out there. Instead, what parents are being told is that they can start bad habits pretty much from birth. I've had parents say, well, I don't want to hold my baby too much because then they'll get addicted to it. It's the notion of bad habits. Mm -hmm. So I tell parents, this is what I love telling them. I'm like, look, 
What if somebody came along and said to you, you had better not carry that baby or that baby will never learn to walk. If you carry them now, they'll become dependent on it. It'll be a bad habit and you'll never be able to put them down so that they can walk. Like we're not worried about walking at all when a baby is brand new. We are not worried that carrying a baby is inappropriate because we know they'll walk when they have the skills to walk. We do the same with feeding themselves and dressing themselves and literally every other skill. But for some reason, we're so weird about sleep. And we say, don't even rock that baby at two weeks because if you do, they will never let go of it. It's crazy. Right. And and again, they are individuals. And when you have, let's say, more than one child and you might have had the lottery kid and the good sleeper on the first or the third, you know, the other one who you had a hold all the time and just really it took a while to soothe and, you know, to find the right sleeping pattern. Yeah, everybody's an individual. And yet we want to have them all fit into a Google Doc or an Insta post. Well, again, the parents want their kid to be meeting milestones, to be tracking with the norm. But our concept of norm is way, way, way too skinny. And we don't give parents the like, look, if you feel like something's up with your baby, here's a little checklist. They have reflux. They have a feeding issue. There's all kinds of stuff now that wasn't on our radar as moms. Just go through a checklist. And if all those things are fine, then this is just how your baby's going to roll for a while. And then it's going to change. So let's try not to stress ourselves out completely. Grace is the place. It's the key word. Yeah, because I tell parents too, lighten up on yourself to have to know all this stuff. I'll tell you another piece of the dark side of advice is it really makes parents doubt themselves. It's written to make you doubt yourself. I got to take a class in my graduate program from a brilliant man named Philip Cushman, who recently just passed, I just found out. But he talks about how the field of psychology in America really emerged around the same time as advertising. And those two things colluded a little bit so that advertising would say, oh, if you want to be healthy, you need to buy this soap. If you want to be hygienic, you have to buy this thing. And we cannot discount the role of consumption in the whole parenting field, that there's always a gadget, there's always a monitor, there's always an app, because you as a parent cannot be trusted to know what your baby needs. And if you think about it that way, a lot of the advice is really written to undercut parents' own instincts and hunches and so that they're doubting themselves constantly so that they have to buy a book, they have to go to a website, they have to seek the answer outside themselves. And I tell parents, look, sleep is not gonna be your last frontier. (laughs) I like to say the parenting road is long, pace yourself. Yeah, definitely a marathon. And again, it will be probably just a fleeting thought and or maybe a story of when you're comparing when they were babies, because every few weeks or months as they cycle into the next little phase of their growth period, it all changes. Oh, my God. You finally get the hang of one phase. And then all of a sudden you have to rewire yourself because your orientation to the child is completely different. 
Yeah, I'm sure like when teething kicks in and then baby doesn't feel good and there's ear infections and, and fevers or what have you. Or when they're two or 14, goodness knows, or 18 and they're, you know, launching. I mean, really, it's a constant moving target. And I tell parents, if you're seeking to finally have that feeling of, I know what I'm doing, you might as well forget it. Because for a lot of us, we really never get to that point because it's constantly shifting and the learning curve is constantly starting anew. So you may get this newborn phase handled and then they're a toddler and then they start saying no. And then they start figuring out that they have different ideas from you. And then they go to school and they have to navigate peers. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So I try to kind of speak to their internal working model as early as possible and say, you have the license to experiment. Find out who your baby is. Find out who you are as a parent. Find out how you as a couple are as parents together. Cannot make mistakes that you cannot course correct from. I think that's what they're worried about. Instead of it being a journey, parenting is kind of a minefield, right? And they have to avoid the traps. That alone puts a tremendous burden on parents. And there's a lot of good um, sort of research coming out about that, about the idea that parents are in charge of knowing and finding out and avoiding all the risks. That's a lot of pressure. So- Social media has to really play a platform to get all of the moving pieces when you start with the visual comparison. And and besides just having your friend, that friend who always has that kid who is always you know, potty trained in, in a week and congratulate. That's great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh-huh. But you couldn't wait to share that news, you know, but. Well, more that they're, they're sharing the method. Oh, I did this great method and now you should try it. And then when you do try it and it does not work the way hers did, then you're like, I think I suck. <laughs> Back when my first child was born, she was born in 94. The internet was just barely a thing. So I didn't have that pressure with her, but there were still magazines. Oh, goodness knows of all the parenting magazines. That was enough pressure for me, just the magazines. Right. I can't even begin to imagine. So when they're little, how important, and I'm still trying to figure this out because I see how well it does work firsthand, the swaddle. I mean, we used to just wrap them in a blanket and not that I'm saying it was the right, but at the time we had bumpers, we had busy boxes, we had mobiles, we had a pillow and a blanket that we covered that baby on, all of those things. And now you have this poor little thing and the swaddle like a little burrito. But I guess that is important to teach them. No, it's really about helping prevent because they were inside, they were bunched up in utero, right? So being all bunched up helps give them that feeling of kind of helping them transition into the world. Kind of tell people they're like, yeah, why won't my baby sleep when I lay them in the bassinet? And it's like, well, think about it. They were just inside where they were jostled and held upright and suspended and moved. You lay them on a flat, unmoving surface, and it's like Mars for them. So the swaddle can help that. Now, many babies hate the swaddle. Indeed. Because the hands are used to being usually up here by the face. So a lot of people don't know. 
So there's different wraps. There's, of course, different swaddles you can buy. Buyer beware. Really, babies need a little blankie that you can wrap them in and some ones. I mean, really. So swaddled, it will be your friend ultimately because it does help babies sleep. But I do know a lot of babies hate it and there's no real alternative. So you can either just keep trying and see if they settle in, just kind of see if you can help them figure it out. I mean, you could spend a fortune buying all the different swaddles. And I don't know that that's really necessary because I don't, in my opinion, there's not a perfect one. But you're right. It wasn't a thing at all. Yeah. And then so if you have a client whose little one is just giving them a little run for their money and they're just not sure the next step, either the baby, I'll say, let's go with the baby doesn't sleep. He eats, you know, maybe he'll doze. We cannot talk about sleep without talking about age. So I look at sleep as pre-six months, post-six months. Pre-six months, it is okay to do what works. Babies just don't have a lot of good infrastructure. The prevailing idea is that you better start early and lay down those tracks so that it won't be a big deal later. First of all, there is no evidence that that has any impact whatsoever. There is a big meta-analysis for definition's sake. A meta-analysis takes a bunch of studies and it does this crazy, hairy statistical analysis, but says across all these studies, what do we know about the effect of working on sleep super early? They found that on average, across all the studies, intervention either had no effect, a tiny little effect, like I think they said 16 minutes more sleep, or the effect wore off in just a month or two. So basically, all of the work on preventing sleep problems showed very little, not worth it effect. So why are we so crazy about it? The notion that you can start a bad habit that you can't just shift when the baby is six months old is completely made up. It is complete fiction. I really can say that without hesitation. There is no evidence that that's a thing. So what you can do is just do what works. If it's working and it's sustainable, don't worry about it. It's fine. So in the first six months, we have to know what's normal for a baby. In the first eight weeks, babies cannot tell the difference between day or night. And so they're sprinkling their sleep across all 24 hours. There is nothing we can do to change that because it has to do with a structure in the brain that has to come online that responds to sunlight. We cannot make that happen any faster than it's going to happen. So if I hear that part, does that also mean as the new baby that you shouldn't also wake the sleeping baby to create a schedule? Now, people do wake babies for feeds and you'll get the uh, information from the pediatrician say, you got to feed this baby. But waking them up in the day is not necessarily going to make them sleep any better at night. In those early weeks, sleep is powered by the brain. The brain basically has off switches. So you can certainly try that. If all you have is a cranky baby in the day and no improvement at night, the next day go, I'm not going to do that again. That did not work. So you're allowed to find out if that works. Don't expect it to work. <laughs> Set the bar low because it means try stuff. Just don't expect it to work. 
right? So experiment for sure. If you want to, for example, put your baby down in the bassinet for a nap. If they sleep 30 minutes, that's a win. It's not like, oh, why didn't they sleep an hour? Yeah, that's a win. Money in the bank. They may not do it again tomorrow and that's okay, right? We have to think about maybe just introducing ideas, but not becoming attached to outcomes in the first six months. We also don't want really little babies crying a ton. Babies' brains are really vulnerable. Doesn't mean they're not going to cry. Of course, they're going to cry, but we don't want to intentionally make them cry for long periods of time. When we talk about the stress of crying it out, air quote, you have to talk about age. You take a 12-month-old and you're setting a limit and that little guy is crying for a while, they have a lot more skills. Their brain is in better shape. They have skills to do something. They can suck on their hand. They can look at something else. They can get into a comfortable position. There's all kinds of things they can do. A two, three, four, five-month-old baby, they have sucking and they might be able to look away from something. That's all they've got. That's it. And when distress is bigger than that, then we don't really know what's happening in their brain. So I really caution people, like if you're gonna wait to respond, just do little tiny moments. It's fine if you wanna try that and see if it gets you anywhere. Some babies will kind of go, eh, 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 Mm -hmm. and fall asleep. Okay, cool, right? Like who can argue with that? Other babies are screaming bloody murder. And I don't think those two things are the same thing. So we really have to go very carefully and slowly have low expectations for the first several months. Then at six months, there's a lot of stuff that kicks in and we really can then start to move the needle and say, okay, baby, remember how all that work I was doing to get you to sleep. Now we're going to start learning how for you to take on more of that work. Mm -hmm. That's what all sleep training boils down to is changing a baby's familiar pattern for how they fall asleep. So if we know that, then we can almost create our own method, I think. Yeah, indeed. So when you are now post like six, and then what's your next band? You say, you know, the newbies that are newborn to six months, then what's your next age band six months to... Well, so ideally we want kiddos in a crib or corralled somehow till Mm -hmm. they're about three. A baby in a bed before three can be a rodeo and a half. Some parents are like, well, he's sleeping terrible in the crib. Maybe if we put him in a bed, it'll be better. And it's so much worse. So if you can, again, if it's safety, you have no choice. Just know that it's going to be a little harder. You're going to have to work harder at how to keep that child corralled and safe, right? Because you don't mm-hmm. want them wandering the house in the middle of the night. So it would be three, we'd say, if you can, because I'll tell you a really lovely um, child development nugget of information yeah. that's really helpful. At two, children can know what they're supposed to do cognitively. I'm supposed to stay in my bed, but they cannot use that knowledge to direct their body. The body does not get the memo from the brain. So you'll see kids reaching for something they're not supposed to touch. And they're saying, don't touch, don't touch. But their hand is moving toward it. So if if you say they're in a bed, they know they're supposed to stay in their bed, but they can't do it. By three, they totally can. So that connection gets made. Interesting. Yeah. Isn't that funny? 
that was a very useful piece of information back in the day. I remember it like, okay, they can know it. They just can't do it. They can't execute. And it's like, it's there, but it's not them just being like, maybe we give the kids a little too much credit. Like, wow, you know, he, he knows he's not supposed to. Right. Why isn't he listening to me? Mm. Right. That whole thing. He's not listening. Yes. It's like, no, he is. He just can't do anything. He can't execute. Right. So at three, then the challenge is really reining in the shenanigans. That's the age where we start going, you know, they start saying, I need another hug. Now I'm hungry. Oh, I've got to go to the bathroom. I love working with three-year-olds because you just know it's like they just got that little Mm -hmm. arc where they're saying, what can I make happen with my brain, right? Like it's exciting, but we really like, we have to get in front of that. And I tell folks, I get babies and three-year-olds because that's where people are like, okay, I expected the toddler stuff and this stuff isn't going away. And how did we get here? And now I'm lying with him. So 90% of that work is allowing parents to set a limit that they stand by. And it's not just setting a limit. It's like, I say, make a chart. And the chart isn't for stickers. It's like a contract. Mm -hmm. Here's what's going to happen. If it's not on the chart, it doesn't happen. Because what happens with parents is we get nickel and dime. So they'll say, oh, I want one more story. And you go, okay, I'll read you one more story. And suddenly tomorrow night, now it's three books. Once the child sort of gets, oh, there's wiggle room. And the smarter the kid, the more in trouble you are. And that's actually very smart with the chart, as you say, because I find, and again, everybody is different, but kids just need to know the plan. Well, and parents do too, I think. Right. And like, okay, the expectation of, oh yeah, uh uh-huh, there's bath, there's, we're going to read the book and we're going to say goodnight. And then we shut the light off and yeah. Yeah. And I tell parents too, because these kiddos, especially the smart little ones are going to throw you curveballs you cannot anticipate. So if you have a chart, you have a place to go. Mm-hmm. So a kid out of the blue says, I'm hungry. I want a banana. I kind of joke and I say, well, look at the chart and go banana, banana, banana. Oh, I don't see a banana on the chart. Oh, stupid chart. Like blame the chart. It's not you because you guys have decided on what's going to happen. And you can say, look, we'll talk about whether you need a snack tomorrow, mm-hmm. but it's not on the chart. So we can't do it. Damn chart. Yeah. Oh, I hate when that happens. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, stupid chart. Who made that thing? <laughs> so you just get out in front of it and then you reinforce it and reinforce it. There's also, this is this other area where there are also kids who will have lots of meltdowns and don't want to sleep. They procrastinate bedtime. And these parents are more tired than even your garden variety parent of a three-year-old. And often they're making choices based on really being between a rock and a hard place. It's like, okay, I could say yes to the banana, or if I say no, I'm going to have a meltdown. Then I'm going to have 20 minutes of more. So that's also why a chart helps you because I also say go over it in the daytime. And if there's going to be anything that's different at night, because what you don't want to do for some kids is you're springing a surprise on them. Mm -hmm. So they say, I want a banana. They're totally expecting you're going to say yes. And when you say no, it's a shock. Or if you say, you know what, tonight, I'm not going to lie with you anymore. What? Meltdown. So don't spring it on them. If you got a sensitive, intense, meltdowny kid, don't surprise them with anything. So if there's anything new, 
practice it during the day. Say, hey, little one, tonight I'm going to sit in a chair beside your bed. I'll stay right there with you, but I'm not going to lie with you tonight. So let's go practice that. Let's go see what that feels like. And just give them a prep run. So that then when it comes time for bedtime, it's not a big shock. They know it's coming. They recognize it. Try to avoid surprising kids at bedtime. Really have a plan. Really talk about it way ahead of time. Remind them, remind them, remind them. And then the next day, you can also go over and say, hey, let's just see how last night went. What do you think? And yeah, we did all the stuff and you stayed in your bed. Wow, look at that. Make a big deal. You stayed in your bed. Last night, it was two hours before you got up. Good for you. Let's see if we can make it three hours tonight. Just trying, trying to string the winds. Yep. Yeah. So that, and that, this kind of stuff works for three and up, I would say. I mean, I would, you know, maybe there's an age where you're not going to be able to do a chart. You know, they're 10, you're not going to do a chart, but three, four, five, six, seven. Let me quickly say there is an age where the bedtime problems aren't due to behavior or limit setting. Let me just quickly say I do run into a lot of kids who have obstructed breathing. So if your child snores outside of a cold, if they snore or breathe through their mouth, you just, if, if you say, yeah, she does it like three times a week, go get it checked. Kids should not snore. They shouldn't snore. Obstruction or apnea really impacts kids. It really impacts them. So just go get it checked. That was actually very, very good. So Let's talk about where everyone can find you and your website, because I'm sure people are going to reach out and say, how can she help us? Okay. My website is littlelivewires.com because I specialize in those kids that are kind of alert and intense and sensitive and kind of on, but I can really talk about any kid. It's just, those are the ones that tend to need coaching. (laughs) The If you use Little Live Wires, that's also for Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, just Little Live Wires. You know, it's so interesting how there were so many great things that you shared. But more importantly, I think it's important that parents, the new parents especially here, that you should really listen to your instinct. We are, again, we're wired that way. It's not by accident that we not only reproduce and bring these new people here with no instruction book. But parents are doing, when you hold a baby over your heart, your heartbeat is regulating the baby's heartbeat. Your breathing is regulating the baby's breathing. All of that is natural. We do it automatically. We don't even know we're doing it. So I also say, give yourself the grace to not know, because none of us knew what the heck we were doing. Not one person. And we made it to the finish line. And now you get, you know, I get to see the the next phase and the next generation. And it's so much fun. But I also see the doubt and the questions they ask each other. And I'm like, oh, my God, we were the same. I, yeah, I guess so. I Either that or we just did. And the baby was fine. Yeah. And that's the whole idea. I just think the parenting road is so long. You know, you've got so much time. And I say, look, you can't screw your kid up with sleep and you have plenty of time to screw them up. (laughs) Lots of other ways. Lots of other ways. Mark my words. Ask my kids. Go ahead. They'll tell you a few. (laughs) It's impossible to get it right. Impossible. Absolutely love it. Thank you so much for sharing all of this wonderful knowledge. 
It's so important. I will have a book on temperament and sleep coming out, but it's not for a while. It's like fall 2024. Okay, I'll be watching and then hopefully we celebrate a a book launch and see what else there is. Absolutely. We love, we love book launches for sure. So again, thank you, everybody. I know your comments, uh, joyfoundhere.com. That's where you're going to go to. And we'll definitely follow and see and be anxiously awaiting the book release. And again, another five-star review episode. Yes, you're welcome. Now, should you find yourself not putting five stars down? No, no, no. Just, Just step away from the keyboard. Five is fine. Until the next week, I want everyone to be well. And thank you for all of your support. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Joy Found Here podcast. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please share it with a friend. And of course, if you haven't already done so, subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. Don't forget to head over to joyfoundhere.com for any questions, comments, and feedback. Until next week, keep your head up and your crown straight. You've got this.